altar's over there, and she goes, <laughs> it was going to be long. It was going to be long. You know how it is? A lot of times you have a lot of notes. You have a lot of things that you want. Where'd y'all go? Uh, that uh, you want to talk about. And uh, sometimes the more material you have, the shorter the lesson is. And sometimes the least amount of material that you have, the uh, longer it lasts. So it's going to be somewhere uh, in the middle. If... Uh, if you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to begin uh, there today. As Randy so eloquently uh, told you, I'm not David Riley. I don't play him on TV, and I don't claim to be him. I'm a rank amateur compared to, uh, to uh, David. So we wish him well today with the Harrison and Willow congregation there. That's a wonderful group. And I don't know if that's two churches or one, but that's where he is, Harrison and Willow. I'll get that on the way home. Can you hear me okay? Do we need to turn the volume up? Everybody hear me okay? No, Miss Mary can't hear me. Give me just a little bit more volume if you would. Dan, ABC, one, two, three. Okay, now if they don't get it adjusted or they get it too much, I will come back there and sit by you. So you, so you can hear me, okay? Is that all right? Everybody good, okay. Matthew chapter 14. I've taught lessons a couple of times about the humanity of Christ and about his body on this, this earth and about he walked and he talked and he ate and he, he got thirsty and he got tired and he got sad and he cried and he laughed and all of those things, the human side that belonged to Christ. I taught a lesson one time about the senses that Christ must have had exactly like ours. Well, today, this is another one of those in, instances where we're told and we realize that Christ was God man, God first, and man on this, on this earth. If he stubbed his toe in those sandals against a rock, it hurt. If he fell, it hurt. He was, he, was, he was man on this earth. And along with that, there come those times in the book of John where he talks about that Jesus cried, Jesus wept. A powerful, powerful statement that he cried because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, with those around him, he cried. The humanity of Christ. It hurt when those nails were put into his hands and to his feet. That was his blood shedding from that crown of thorns. That Roman, pier that Roman piercing his side with a, with a spear, that hurt. That hurt. Did he complain? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Think of Christ as man in Matthew chapter 14. Now at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. Now Matthew describes this Herod, the Tetrarch, Antipas. He describes him correctly. Sometimes he's referred to as a king. He really wasn't. He was appointed by the Roman government and Herod the Great, his father, ruled a larger territory than the rest of them, but he kills, Herod the Great kills two of his sons because he thinks they want to become king of Israel, appointed by Rome. And now he's, he, he dies and his kingdom is divided up by the Roman government into four. So he's a tetrarch, the prefix tet, tet means four, uh, a tetrahedron math teacher, a four-sided figure. You can make a solid out of a pyramid with four, 
with four triangles, right? Okay, that means, that means four. So the kingdom of Canaan or Israel, the Romans, had divided in two. So Antipas' territory was largely Galilee and over on the other side of the Jordan River, a, a little short section over there. So it really wasn't that large a kingdom, yet he made a pretty good wealth doing it. He became pretty wealthy and pretty famous and pretty cruel. His fame, he begins to be worried about Jesus. And verse 2, and, and Herod says to his servants, uh, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore the mighty works do show forth themselves to him. Now we're told in this next section how it happened. Now, sometimes in Scripture, sometimes in a book, sometimes in a movie you watch, okay? You get one of those flashbacks, right? Okay, you, you, they begin the story, and then all of a sudden it was when I was a little boy. Or... Before we got married. Oh, you get one of those flashbacks, okay? That, so now, John the Baptist is already dead, and Herod thinks that this is, this Jesus that they're talking about, is John the Baptist. Now, why would he have confused those two things? You know, maybe they looked alike. They were first cousins. Maybe they looked alike or cousins. Maybe they, maybe they looked alike. Maybe they talked alike. Maybe they walked alike. He didn't have grasshoppers coming out of his teeth like, like John did but the people feared him they feared John because he was such a great prophet okay so now we've said this John the Baptist is dead so this Jesus Herod says that must be him because see his, his Herod Agrippa Herod Agrippa Herod the Great had uh, killed two of his sons they were afraid in all the palaces and buildings and all that sort of thing that they would see their ghost, that they would, that they would see him. They were so afraid of him. So he might quickly think that this Jesus might be John the Baptist. Verse 3, for Herod had laid hold on John. Now we've got that flashback. We're going to tell you how this happened. And he bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now wait a minute. She's Philip's wife, but she's... Herod's wife. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the word for this section, Eddie? Soap opera. <laughs> Soap opera, right? Herod Antipas goes up to the, uh, the country that uh, his half-brother Philip is over, meets this woman, Herodias, who's actually in the family lineage too, you can tell from the name, right? Okay, she's in the family lineage too. So he says, why don't you leave Philip and come marry me? And she says, you go on up to Rome like you were going to, like, it, like you were heading. When you come back, I'll let you know. So he comes back. They say, Philip, she's going home with me. So now she's his wife. His brother's wife is now his wife. There's got to be something wrong with that, okay? I mean, you know, that, that's just, there's just something wrong with that, right? Well, guess what? According to Roman law and according to the, to the Old Testament, under the old law, yes, it was wrong then too as well. So John said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And when he would have put him to death because he feared the multitude, Herod, because they counted John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, 
the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to her to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being instructed by her mother said, give me there Give me here John the Baptist's head on a charger. Now, family story. I was in the first grade, and I was in my mother's Sunday school class. And she said, okay, now tell me about this story about John the Baptist and Herodias' daughter. I said, she said that she wanted John the Baptist's head and charge it. Now, see, in that day and time, when you went to the grocery store or the gas station, Daddy had a haircut. You charge, you charge it. It was just part of that society. So that made sense to me instead of a charger. That's a meat platter. That's a meat platter. Put a man's head on a meat platter and bring it to me. Now that's pretty, that's pretty gruesome. That is gruesome. So verse 8. She being instructed of her mother in verse 9. And the king was sorry. In a lot of ways he was, wasn't he? He was sorry. He could have done better. He was sorry, but he was sorrowful that he had been asked to do this, right? Nevertheless, for the oath's sake and those which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Now see, Herodias was going to get even. She wasn't going to put up with that old stuff. She didn't want to hear, you can't do that, I can't do that, you can't do that. She didn't want to hear that, she got even. He won't be saying that anymore. Verse 12, and his disciples, John's disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus, Jesus heard of it, he departed and by ship to a deserted place, not the desert like the Sahara, and when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Have you ever had a, uh, an incident happen where you're given some incredi incredibly bad news? And in front of everyone else, you have to hide that. I was at a meeting with about 200 of our customers in a particular area of, uh, of town and I got a phone call. My nephew in his 40s had died of a heart attack. Just complete, complete shock. I'd ridden with half a dozen other people so I, I, had, to, I had to be there. And I had to go back out there and welcome those people talk to them and carry that icicle in my heart with me. It's cold. It's cold. Rodney spoke at his grandmother's funeral. He didn't think he could do it. I told him, you got this. You got this. Did you have an icicle in your heart? Yeah, because you were with her. That sorrow was with you. And yet he did a fantastic job eulogizing a wonderful woman. He did a great job but you would never have known he was he was upset about it because he carried it with him and carried it well as as David's last words to uh, Solomon uh, might have been Solomon be a man <laughs> you have to be a man sometimes don't you you have to be a man 
Christ is given this news and he has to take care of this multitude of people all the time with that icicle that he just lost, his cousin, a great prophet, a great man, the voice of the wilderness that comes, crying in the wilderness that comes before him. They called him Elijah because he was telling, repent for the kingdom of the Lord is hand. That voice is now, is now stilled. Christ hurts at this as he tries to go away into, into a deserted place. Verse 14, And he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, now he's been at this all day. Then it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a de desert place. Now, it's around the Sea of Galilee. It's green. It's a resort kind of looking, <laughs> looking place around the Sea of Galilee. There's moisture there, so it's not... It's not sand and rocks. It'd be a nice place. And we'll find out about, uh, a little more about that. And the time is now past that the multitude may go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give them to eat. Whew. That's a tough job, isn't it? We're in a deserted place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the hills, and he says, you give them to eat. And they said, we have but five loaves and two fishes. Now, five loaves and two fishes, if Steve caught them, they might be pretty young. He throws the little ones back, you know. We keep all of them. He, <laughs> he, we, you know, he, he keeps just the big ones. This was a little boy's lunch meal. Five loaves. What if he said four little tortillas? Like Miss Archibald said, that's just dough. That's just raw dough. Five tortillas and two sardines. Now that's probably closer to exactly what they had. Five loaves and two fishes. But it was about that size. So it's a miracle. But I mean, it's a miracle. It's really small fishes. It's a boy's lunch. This is all we've got. This is all we have. He says, verse 18... Bring them to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down in the grass. Well, wait a minute. Is there grass in a desert? He, he said, sit down in the grass. And they took five loaves and two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed or gave thanks. And break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained. And there were 12 baskets full. Have you ever had a big crowd of folks over at your house? And you made a meatloaf and it's this big and you get to count and say, there's one, two, man, there's 12 of them. We've got to make little bit slices. Everybody gets this much meatloaf. You ever, you ever have a big, or people just drop in and you think, well, okay, I think there's enough soup for everybody. If she has a bowl, he has a bowl, they have a bowl. Is there, is there enough? That was not a problem. This was a major event. They're in the afternoon. Everybody's hungry. They've been out in, they've been out in the, in the, in the highways and byways of this deserted area, there's no place for them to go to eat. Five loaves, tortillas, two little sardines, and they feed 5,000 men and the women and the children that they didn't count. Anybody under the age of 20, they didn't count them. They didn't count them. Is that a miracle? That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And they did all eat and were filled Verse 21, and they that had eaten were about 5,000 besides women and children. Now, what's he got in his heart? 
he still got that icicle in him. He still got that hurt for, for his, uh, his cousin, for John the Baptist, that great man. He still got it. Verse 22. And straightway, now in good old Arkansas terms, stood a straightway, what would you say? I mean, right then, right? <laughs> right then, now, now, right now, Jesus constrained. Okay, and that's another one, okay? Jesus constrained. What would be another word that you might use there? And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples. Right then, Jesus told them, you boys get in a boat. As plainly as he, as he could, right? Now, verse 22, I want you to think about that for a while. And as we go through the rest of this chapter, we're going to come back to that one, okay? And straightway, right then, Jesus constrained, told his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Okay, so he tells them right then, y'all get in the boat and before me. What does before me imply? Before me. I'll be behind you. It's, now, before me, I'm going to stay on the shore and wave at y'all like people do when the boats leave. No, I'm coming too. Y'all go across this lake, and I'm coming too. Y'all get in the ship while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. What do you think he prayed about? The grief that he was sharing because of loss of his cousin? The fact that he's exhausted, that it's tired, that he's tired. He went to the mountain to pray. When evening was come, he was there alone. Now there are two times that we hear that Christ is alone and he prays all night. This is one of them. Where's the other one? Where's the other one? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And he weeps as if and prays and sweats as if there are great drops of blood in Gethsemane. He's there alone, but the ship was now in the middle of the sea, verse 24, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now, wait a minute. The fourth watch of the night. Sometimes it's called the prison guard. The watch is sometimes called a prison guard because they would trade out guards at a particular time for every three hours. And uh, so this watch, under Roman terms, uh, would have started uh, in the evening. And this fourth watch would have been the last one. It would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it began about there. So Christ had been up there all this time. Say anything about, having, about him being asleep? Resting? Says he's praying, doesn't he? Says he's praying. In the fourth watch, so three to six in the morning, Jesus went to him walking on the sea, and the disciples saw him walking in the, on the sea, and they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now, I'm glad that we're not superstitious the way people uh, used to be, right? You, you ever see a black cat and turn around, you walk through a ladder and walk around, like, you don't do any of that, do you? Oh, sure, you read your horoscope, you better not. Okay. <laughs> it's, they would look out on the Sea of Galilee when the water was cool and there was warm, moist air coming across it, and there would be a fog lifting. And sometimes, you know, they kind of looked like 
They kind of looked like something coming out of the water. They thought they were spirits of people that had perhaps drowned in the Sea of Galilee. I'm glad we're not crazy like that, aren't you? <laughs> but they think that it's a ghost. They think it's a spirit that is walking towards them, and it scares them. Verse 26, they saw him walking, they were troubled, and they cried out for fear. But straightway, now wait a minute, a while ago, when it's straightway, he told them to go to the boat. Now straightway, what does that mean? Just right now, right? But straightway, right now, Jesus spoke and said, Be of good cheer, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's, if it's you, bid me... Unto, to come unto thee on the water. Now, how many times had Peter seen somebody? He's a fisherman. He was on the Sea of Galilee all the time. How many times do you think he'd seen somebody walking across the water? I'm going to say this the first time, right? But it's somebody different. It's Christ, and he's walking toward him, and he tells him not to be afraid. Was he afraid? Evidently not. I don't know how many disciples were in the boat with him. Could have been 12 that were in the boat with him. And yet they sit there while the wind tosses the boat around. But Peter's the only one that said, let me come to you. Let me come to you. Now, he said, verse 29, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Pretty brave, right? Pretty brave. When he saw the wind boisterous or blowing or strong... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately, that's straight way again, isn't it? Immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, where didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased, and they were in the ship, came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Because he could walk on water, because he saved Peter's life. Now there was something that happened to Peter in this process, right? He's brave. Let me come out there too. If you can walk on water, I think I can too. Let me come to you. What happens? He takes his eyes off of Christ. What happens to us if we take our eyes off of Christ? What happens to us when we consider the cares and struggles of the world? And they were real. That water was lapping up around his feet. It was washing into the boat. They were scared. They thought they, they had paddled and rowed for all they were worth. And they couldn't get across the lake. It was either from 8 miles across this way or 16 miles across this way rowing. They were tired. They were scared. But when he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink. Remember verse 22. And if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 4 and about verse 35. Mark chapter 4 and about verse 35. Now this is another instance of a miraculous cruise, okay? <laughs> it's another miraculous cruise cruise. Mark chapter 4 verse 35. 
And the same day, not the same day we were talking about, okay, this is a different instance, okay. And the same day when the even was come, he said, let us pass over to the other side. Anything different about this one? Just so far. Let us pass over to the other side. 115 years ago, Sean was in a teen class and Allison and Chris Eubanks and Clay and, and uh, several others for a vacation Bible school at, at Oak. And I had, I had Sean, had, uh, what's your name? Sean. <laughs> Repeat this last part. Every time I talk a little bit about this chapter, a little about this event, I would say, what did he say, Sean? What would you say, Sean? What the verse said, let's go to the other side. Let's go to the other side. Those are his instructions. Let us go to the other side. Did he send him in a boat to row across it? Without him, I'll see y'all later. No, he says, let us. Let us go to the other side. Verse 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. So perhaps this boat is bigger. Perhaps it's not. You know, the, the Sea of Galilee is, uh, is, as I said, it's about 8 miles wide and about 16 miles long or so. It's really deep. And it's down in, a, it's down in the valley. Have you ever been to Clinton, Arkansas? It, you know, it's lovely this time of year, I know. But if you, go into, if you go into Clinton, Arkansas, you go up kind of a hill and then you go down and then there are hills all around. They have a lovely airport in there. It's about this long, and in order to land in it, you have to drop out of the sky, okay, <laughs> because it's, it's in a bowl. The Sea of Galilee is like that. It's surrounded by a bowl only many times higher than Clinton, Arkansas. But through those narrow passages, there were often winds that came from the Mediterranean Sea that were cool, and the, and the air around Galilee was hot, and hot air, cold air, where is Ned Permy when you need him? Hot air, cold air, what's going to happen? You're going to get a thunderstorm really quickly. So there arose a great storm. Verse 37, arose a great storm. The, the, uh, the word there in Greek is uh, close to the word that we get earthquake from. It's like seismos, like a seismologist studies earthquakes. So it's, I mean, it's bad. It's like the earth is shaking. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so now that it was full. When even was come, okay, now it's dark, now it's, <laughs> now it's night, okay, there's a terrible storm, water's coming into the boat, now it's full. Right now, I'm thinking, I probably can't tread water very long in a storm. And with a boat singing, I'm probably not going to make this. So now it was full. Now, he, verse 38, was in the hinder part, the back part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Why would he have been asleep? He's exhausted. <laughs> He's exhausted, for one thing. Back in the back where the, uh, where the person that, that, that directs the boat, okay, if they're rowing, if they're rowing like this, usually you see them and because the more strength, where's my kinesiology major over here? More strength this way than that way, right? So they're rowing that boat 
and they're headed for whatever that guy in the back of the boat is pointing them toward. So they're expecting that Christ is leading or directing or, or got his hand on the rudder of this boat and the storm comes up and he's asleep. He's asleep. What did he say, Sean? Let's go to the other side. And then he went to sleep. A storm came up. What did he say, Sean? Let's go to the other side. That's what, that's what he said. And he was on the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him up and said to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? What did he say? Let's go to the other side. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now I've thought several times about this phrase right here because Mark is the one that uses this phrase in particular right here. About the, the others say Christ, the, the synoptic, the three gospels all repeat this. All four of them repeat the, the miraculous feeding that happened in the other, in the other one. But all of them carried this, this gospel, uh, this lesson right here. But they all say, he rebuked the wind and caused the waves to be still. Now, once you turn the water off, does it immediately get calm? It kind of has to work its way out, doesn't it? But not when Christ does it. Not when Jesus does it. When he says, be still, it's still. Okay, now, anybody got that? Ralph, you got that open right, right there, verse 38 or 9, where he says that in Mark? What does he say? Four verse thirty-five. What does he say? Something about peace. What does he say? Peace, be still. How did God the Father create the world? How did God the Father create the sun, the moon, the stars? He spoke it into being, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, John tells us in John chapter 1. So Christ is there too, and He's aware of that. When God created the heavens and the earth, how do you think He said it? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you. But do you think God had to scream it out loud? You think it doesn't say God hollered it into being, does it? How did Christ say it? Just think about that for a minute. How did Christ Say it. How did Christ say it? Did he have to holler it? Did he have to holler it? He could have if he didn't want to. I don't recall hearing Christ holler in any of the... Oh, page 425 in your songbook. I wasn't on the singing committee this morning. I wasn't on the singing committee this morning. We're not going to sing it right now, but for, for page 425, go there. We're going to read the first verse, okay? Page 425. Master, the, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. The sky is overshadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How can thou lie asleep? Where did we hear that? Just a minute ago, right? How can you lie asleep when each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep? Now, the dynamic markings escape us sometimes in this course. The letter P means piano. That means, that's Italian, means soft. 
double P, pianissimo, really, really, really soft, okay? And down here it says crescendo poco a poco, get louder a little bit by a little bit, okay? And then it goes up to fortissimo, two Fs, fortissimo, and it goes down to mezzo forte, back down to piano, mezzo forte, back down to piano, and then to pianissimo. What words are underneath those letters P and double P? Peace be still. Soft and very soft. Peace be still. Peace be still. Peace be still. Very softly. When Christ speaks to us, is it a raging torrent? When Christ speak to us, speaks to us, does He yell at us? Very softly. See, that's what that song is really about. It's that double meaning. It's that double meaning, right? Those disciples were afraid and they were about to be lost and they thought Christ didn't care for them. What did He say to them, Sean? Let's go to the other side. When Christ tells us you're going to go to the other side, what's going to happen? Lo, I am with you even until the end of time, end of the age. Did He promise? He, wait a minute. Is that another way of saying let's go to the other side? That's exactly what that is. Let's go to the other side. That's what it is. Sometimes we have to go on ahead and Christ stays behind, don't we? There are times when we feel like we're out there all alone. We're out there all by ourselves. And where is Christ? Christ was up on top of a mountain. He was exhausted. He had prayed all night. He would prayed to the Father. And yet He looks out and He sees His disciples in trouble because He always looks after His own. Does He not? So two things I'd like for you to take from this morning. Christ looks out for you. Christ knows where you go and how you got there and where you're going next. He sees the valley that you're in, the lowest valley, but He can see the mountain on the other side that you're going to. You're going to make it through. Why? Because He said, let's go to the other side. Peace be still. Even when you think He's not with you, He's looking after you. And if He's not with you, how far away is He? No matter how far you wander away from God, no matter how far you are from His body, the church, no matter all the mistakes that you make, how far away is He? Right there. Right there. So this morning, thank you for your kind attention. This was supposed to last an hour and a half. I'll get you next time. Was it very long, Randy? I don't know, I'm not through yet. You know, the longest expanse of recorded time is when a preacher says, and in conclusion, so in conclusion, thank you for your attention this morning, and I appreciate you all being here. And if there's anyone that has any need that we as the body of Christ can help you with, whether it's that you've studied, you've learned about Christ, and you've learned that Christ died for you, 
and shed his precious blood. You want to be immersed and make contact with that blood of his. Have your sins forgiven and washed away. Perhaps you're that disciple that had no faith. No, he had little faith. He had little faith. Perhaps you're like that apostle, that disciple. You have a little faith, but you need more. And you need to be stronger. Christ can reach out his hand to you through the body of Christ. We'd love to pray for you. Would you come as we stand together and sing?